0: The Lord said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, to the land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5 Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day To the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury. Signifying nothing. This is The Meditation of Macbeth the murderous monarch following the death of his wicked wife. Our mortality, he says, makes individual life meaningless. Our lives can be compared to candles. Their brilliance is but brief. Time is a series of insignificant events. Endless yesterdays followed by tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. This is the most eloquent expression in the English language of a feeling of futility. And it is everything that Abrahamic faith was founded to reject. Welcome to Bible 365. I'm Mayor Selvage. When we last left the survivors of the flood, we saw how the two birds launched from the ark, the raven that flew aimlessly and the dove that discovered a sign of life, represent the triumph of hope over the darkness of despair. But it seems at least initially that this lesson is lost on Noah, for we sense that despair does indeed descend. As the floodwaters recede and Noah emerges from the ark, he begins his post-diluvian life by planting a vineyard. Harvest leads to drink, and the drinking leads to stupor. Genesis 9, verse 20. And Noah began as a tiller of the earth, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. Why does he drink? Why, upon emerging from the ark, does Noah plant grapes rather than grain, a source of sustenance? The Bible does not explicitly say, but it is not hard to guess. Think of what Noah has just been through. He has experienced the watery death of the entire world. How could he not turn to drink? How could he not despair of life, like Macbeth said, as a walking shadow? Thus wine enters human history as a means of escape from life's woes, relief from our troubles. One son, Ham, or Ham, excitedly reports on his father's disgrace. But Noah's two other children, Shem and Yefet, with the former seemingly leading the initiative, care for their father. Chapter 9, verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward, and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. This is not only the first time that we truly see an interaction between father and child in the biblical text. It is also the moment in which filial reverence is invented, the first time that honor for parents is exhibited. Upon coming to, Noah curses the son that has disrespected him and prophetically blesses the other two, in verse 22. In Hebrew, God will bring beauty to Yephet, but he will dwell in the tent of shame. From Yephet will descend the civilization that will bring beauty to the world. For the rabbinic tradition, this is a reference to Athens, to the contributions of Greece. But, Noah stresses, the dwelling place of the divine will be in the tent of shame, the ancestor of Abraham. It is in the communion and transmission, embodied by Abraham, first heralded by his ancestor Shem's familial reverence, that offers the Hebraic answer to mortality. It is with this in mind that we can understand how even as the first appearance of wine in Scripture seems exceedingly negative, this is not a drink that Jews have spurned. It is over wine that the Sabbath is sanctified, and over wine that the Passover Seder is celebrated. And what Jews traditionally toast over wine is not escapism from death, but rather the cherishing of life. L'chaim, usually rendered to life, known to both Jew and Gentile alike through the Broadway musical Fiddler on the Roof. But, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has noted, chayim in Hebrew actually exists only in the plural, so technically, l'chaim could be understood as toasting not to life, but to lives. The meaning, perhaps, is that life becomes truly meaningful when it is shared, when it is about something larger than ourselves. This, for Jews, is most fully realized in the joining of generations. This is what Jews do when we toast l'chaim to lives, recalling not Noah's drunken act of escapism, but rather his words that follow. God will dwell in the tent of shame, leading to a truly Semitic discovery, if we can speak anachronistically, of where we find meaning in the face of mortality, through being joined to others. The family of shame comes into being in the discovery of meaning by being part of something larger than ourselves. And yet, in the face of this discovery of the importance of the collective, there is another danger, that the individual is ultimately effaced. Generations pass, and the tale of Mesopotamian mankind continues in the ancient social setting of Sumer, in the land that will later be known as part of the empire of Babel. The famous tale of the Tower of Babel is told in Genesis chapter 11 and the whole earth was of one language, and divarim achadim, few words. The Hebrew here is obscure, but the phrase "a few words might mean that the culture was one that de-emphasized individual expression, because it was one that denied the very uniqueness of the individual itself. In his book, The Gifts of the Jews, Thomas Cahill describes how Sumerians looked up at the sky and saw only cycles the waxing and the waning of the moon, the endless arc of the sun and stars, and concluded that life on earth ought to mirror life in heaven. Human lives were an endless cycle of birth and death, with nothing new to seek to accomplish. Thus, when we study the Mesopotamian tales of that era, writes Cahill, quote, there were no rounded individuals in Sumer, just temporary earthly images of heavenly exemplars, patterns, and paradigms, which is why the two-dimensional characters of Sumerian stories display so little individuality, end quote. All Sumerians sought, in other words, was to become part of the eternal cycle, to defeat death by denying our individuality and assimilating into the collective, and to thereby become akin to the cosmos and the endless cycle of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. This, perhaps, is the meaning of the biblical tale that follows, the tale of the tower, which seems to describe the ziggurats of Mesopotamia. Genesis 11, verse 4. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick instead of stone and slime for mortar. And they said, come, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach to the heavens and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. A tower whose head reaches the sky. This is central to Sumerian culture. Why, Thomas Cahill further writes, were all early temples and sacred places built at the highest point available to the builders? Because, Cahill continues, this is the place nearest the sky. And why is the most sacred space nearest the sky? Because, he writes, the sky is the divine opposite of life on earth, home of all that is eternal in contrast to the mortal life on earth. When primitive man looked up at the heavens, he saw a vast cavalcade of divine figures regularly passing before his eyes, the cosmic drama breathtaking in its eternal order and predictability. Here, Cahill writes, are the eternal prototypes and models for mortal life, but a great gulf yawns between the two spheres. For the life of the heavens, the life of the gods, is immortal and everlasting, while life in the earthly sphere is mortal, ending in death, End quote. This, then, is the meaning of the tower's architect's aspirations, a tower whose top may reach the heavens. Only by joining the endless cycle that the stars reflected could they partake somehow in collective eternity. But in doing so, they must give up on individuality or difference, for it is the eternal order described by Cahill that is worshipped. A comedian once commented that, I always wanted to be somebody. I realize now, I should have been more specific. But in Sumer, it is specificity that is rejected. For that is the price that needs to be paid if we are to overcome mortality, to become akin to the cosmos themselves. And if we look further, there is another hint to this effacing of individuality in the text. For the Bible here goes out of its way to stress the material used in the creation of this edifice. And they use bricks, we are told, instead of stones. As we shall see in Exodus, the supreme symbol of the Hebraic covenant is often an altar built not of bricks but natural stones from the ground. Why the difference? Constructing an edifice out of natural stones is a great skill because each stone is unique. In contrast, as my father once suggested, when one builds out of brick, every single one is the same. Thus, a sacred structure of natural stone symbolizes what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs once called integration without assimilation, meaning it proclaims that each individual is unique but finds further meaning in a distinct contribution to the larger whole. The brick-based tower of Babel, in contrast, as my father suggested, involves the denial of difference. Every being was a brick, not unique, replaceable. But if the embrace of difference is denied, then the divine will... Will enforce difference upon the tower's builders. Thus God continues in verse 6 Come, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the earth, and they ceased to build the city. A society that sought assimilation of individuals is forced into fragmentation. A larger amount of languages will hopefully produce a panoply of perspectives as the people spread further over the earth. But, As society spreads, it seems at first that the Almighty's efforts did not achieve its intended goal. The stars are still worshipped for their purported eternity and divinity. And what that means is that all believe that individuals' fates are fixed and that all true difference is ultimately denied. But suddenly, nine generations after Noah, we are introduced to a man named Terach and to his son, Avram, or Abram, which in Hebrew means Avram, Exalted Father, The name seemingly indicates a dream, perhaps inherited from the parent who named him, of fathering a great family. And yet this dream itself seems deferred, if not dashed. For we are further told that Abram's wife Sarai is barren. Terach leads Avram and his brothers from their childhood home of Ur-Kastim to Haran, and there Terach passes away. Suddenly, at the age of 75, Abram hears the immortal words, The first time since Noah that we find the Almighty explicitly addressing man. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, to the land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Abram is asked by this God that he has somehow come to know to embark on a journey into the unknown that will change the world. Thus the Almighty further adds, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Given all that we now know about the society of Abram's age, Abram chooses to obey the Almighty's instruction. Then the apparently eternal cycle of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow will be broken. Something entirely new will appear on this earth. Thomas Cahill tells us what might have happened had Abram surveyed the civilizations of his generation while describing all that the Almighty had asked of him. On every continent, Cahill writes, in every society, Avram would have been given the same advice that wise men as diverse as Heraclitus, Lao Tzu, and Siddhartha would one day give their followers. Do not journey, but sit. Compose yourself by the river of life. Meditate on its ceaseless and meaningless flow, on all that is past or passing or to come, until you have absorbed the pattern and have come to peace with the great wheel and with your own death and the death of all things in the corruptible sphere. Cale's point is that Abram obeys not the popular wisdom of his time, but rather the words of the Almighty. And what appears in verse 4, after God's command to journey, are, for Cahill, two Hebrew words that changed the world. Fayelech Avram, and Abram went. He went for it. As I noted in one of my introductions to the Bible 365 series, these words for Cahill, quote, signal a complete departure from everything that has gone before. Out of Sumer, civilized repository of the predictable, comes a man who does not know where he is going, but goes forth into the unknown wilderness under the prompting of his God. Out of the human race, Cahill adds, which knows in its bones that all its striving must end in death, comes a leader who says he has been given an impossible promise. Out of mortal imagination comes a dream of something new, something better, something yet to happen, something in the future. Because of Abraham's journey, Cale concludes, quote, we can hardly get up in the morning and cross the street without being Jewish. Most of our best words, new adventure, surprise, future freedom, progress, faith, and hope. All these words are the gifts of the Jews. In the 20th century, the primary danger to the West came from tyrannies, who, like the tower-building Babylonians of yore, denied the infinite preciousness of the individual. But today, in the West, the danger, perhaps, is the opposite that we forget the story of Noah's son, that we emphasize the individual, devoid of a covenantal community. But a life unconnected is a life aptly described by Macbeth, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. In Abraham, the story of an individual who makes a free choice to follow his dream and his God, and thereby change the world, we see the balance between the freedom of the individual and the meaning of community. Rabbi Sachs reports that, quote, "I once had the opportunity to ask the Catholic writer Paul Johnson what had struck him most about Judaism during the long period he spent researching it for his masterly history of the Jews." He replied in roughly these words: "There have been in the course of history societies that emphasized the individual, like the secular West today, and there have been others that placed weight on the collective communist Russia or China, for example." Judaism," he continued was the most successful example he knew that managed the delicate balance between both, giving equal weight to individual and collective responsibility. Judaism was a religion of strong individuals and strong communities. This, he said, was very rare and difficult and constituted one of our greatest achievements, end quote. Avram and Abram went. We end today with these words. But with these words, an entirely new story begins. The tale of Abram is that of the strongest individual that had ever lived, who defied the supposed Sumerian cycle, but who in so doing created a family and a covenantal community more eternal than any other in existence. And that is why he will continue to serve as a beacon of inspiration tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.